All right. <clears throat> I was watching a video um, a couple days ago by Josh McDowell, and it's called Christ Up Close and Personal. And we've done bits and pieces of that before in our classroom time. And it was done under um, the idea of a little bit different purpose. It was for, I was using his, his uh, information to establish the authority of God's word and the value of it and, and, its author and its authenticity, its truthfulness, you know, all those kinds of things. Well, I just happened to put it on this time because I just thought, you know, I'm just interested in hearing something, f again, for, from a different perspective. And he was saying it's, it's Christ up close and personal. And since our subject matter this week is about Christ, his, his coming in, uh, in the likeness of man, what that really means to us. And I thought, well, there may be some things in there that, because I was listening it through different ears, that maybe I would hear. And, and in fact, I did it with, I, this is something I, I wrote afterwards. Um, God gave us his word that we would have a deep and intimate relationship with him. His word reveals to us his holiness, his love, his mercy, and, and so much more than that. In doing the inductive processes, we are drawn into every single word and thought that God has given to us, right? We have a unique and powerful opportunity because of these processes that we do to meditate on a deeper level than we would do without it. I know that when I have done other kinds of Bible studies, they're not as as challenging to require that you slow down, that you say, mark this word, make a list, do some word studies, go back now, reevaluate this in light of what the author's purpose is in that particular uh, passage or in that particular chapter. The, all these steps, all these processes slow us, really slow us down. And in that, there's such an intimacy in this. Becky and I were just talking about some, you know, some scenarios that you can get into in Bible studies. It's, it's much more up on this level of emotionally, you know, how do you feel about things? And, um, and that's good. And there's a need for that in some, in some situations. But at some point, it, you need to be drawn into a deeper area because there needs to be a rock established beneath your feet. So without these processes, I, I'm just kind of challenging us to reevaluate what we're doing when we do our homework because it, it's very easy to fall into a, a pattern in your mind of, I've got to get my homework done. I've got to check that box. When the reality of it is, when we go into this method of study because of its techniques and tools and processes, it, it takes you into a deeper relationship with God if you allow it to. So my prayer is that your homework time will become for you not a box to check, but a time of sweet fellowship by his word and through his spirit that deepens your love and trust in Christ. Getting to know God's heart and seeing through the pages of the Bible just how far God reaches out to draw us in and to give us courage to trust him. This is a life-changing gift. Don't look at your, your 
your work, these mechanical steps as mechanical steps. Think of them as God's tool to draw you deeper into knowing him better. Because ultimately, that is what is the goal. This is what we want. Of all the reasons why God gave us his word, one of the most essentials is that we simply would know him. Without knowing his heart and not knowing his his purposes, we what would we be? Where would we be floundering in this world, right? Uh, John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And in 1 John 1, 3, it says, I love this one. This is talking about... They're reaching out to others to draw them into the fellowship of a, of a believing body of, of, of Christ lovers. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So the goal is to come into this intimacy with God, into this fellowship. And what, how do we do that? You can't do it by basing it off of your experiences alone in the world. Isolated, those experiences isolated from the knowledge of God's word are just your life. It's a life apart from Christ. But when you establish time in your life and you, and you develop these disciplines so that you really meditate, as it says in Joshua, meditate day and night on my word. Therefore, he says he wants you to do this, that you may know how to do what God desires of you. You can't know it without that deep intimacy of knowledge of his words. So that's my little word of encouragement this morning. All right. You're welcome. (laughs) It just came to me from this time I spent. Well, and, and, uh, you know, as I'm looking we this week one of the things we did do was we we dabbled in chapter three a little bit she said the last two days you were to spend observing chapter three I went ahead because she um uh in the um lesson plan that we're going to be doing today it's all about what we did those first three days primarily we're not going to touch as much on chapter three next week she's going to ask you to go into chapter four now and we're going to be looking at three and four together Kind of, as, kind of like we've look, been looking at one and two together, okay? And um, since we didn't really, in, in the way that they want us to do, look at this work this week, she did not have me go into chapter three very much. But I'm telling you, I did a bunch of work, and it's probably because we had two weeks. You know, we had two whole weeks to dig into it, right? So before I move off of that and go into our primary subject today, I do want to just kind of get a, a feel of for what you came up with in Chapter 3 as far as your big message and, and your flow of thought in that. You're going to be asked to build on that next week by looking at 4 and then give a complete flow of thought. You need to be able to understand how one chapter relates to another. And the only way you can do that is first by breaking down three, and then next week you're going to break down four and then kind of merge them together. So tell me in your work on observations for chapter three, what are some of the the obvious things that you saw going on in that particular chapter? What were some of your key, major key words? House and being faithful. Okay. 
heart. I loved that one. It became much more profound once you marked it and really began to see the message behind why the heart was mentioned, right? Okay. Today. Love that word, Carrie. When you looked at today, and, we're, and I look next week, it's not even going to be addressed, and I'm, I haven't looked into the, the following week after that. But what do you know about that word today? What does that, in the, in the way that it's phrased there, what is it saying? It means right this minute, because as long as it is called today, and, you know, what is the implication about what's coming tomorrow? So far, we've had um, a lot of, there's a subliminal, what I call an analytical subject going on in this book, and that is about the kingdom to come. It's the millennial kingdom, that thousand-year rule and reign. He he mentions it in chapter 1, where he says... um, he appointed Jesus, his son, heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And then he says um, uh, the, he, how Jesus did make the world. And then he, he talks about when he again brings the son in, into the world. Where is that one at? Let's see. Uh, one, six. Okay, thank you. When he again brings the firstborn into the world. Oopsie, I redid my my list, and I forgot to mark that word. That's why I couldn't find it. Okay, when he again brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. So it goes on to explain some of the events that are going to take on when the son is brought back into the world. When is the son being brought back into the world? For the millennial kingdom rule, right? Well, then in verse 5, look at the flow of thought. In 5, he says, for he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. Do you see it? So it, he's, there is a subliminal message. The, the primary message in here is that Jesus is better than or greater than, right, or more glorious than all of these things that, that are within the system of the Jewish uh, life, correct, that they've come out of. And um, but beneath that, he's saying to them also, set your eyes on what's yet to come. You're now in faith in Christ Jesus, and I want you to not forget the hope that you still have. You've not arrived, as, the, as, it's, as it says, you know. You're not here. He says, so you're looking forward to a day when, uh, when my son, I will bring him back into the world. This is the, the time in which I did not subject the world to come to angels. I subjected it to you. And I'm going to reestablish it. Why is he going to reestablish it? What did we learn last week about that? What, how did we lose our control of ruling this present world? Through the fall and through sin. Who presently is in rulership over this? Satan is. Now, that doesn't mean we lost everything, obviously, right? But we did lose that spiritual uh, power because we sinned. We rebelled against the law of God, and we did what we wanted. We, you know, Adam and Eve both ate of that tree and consequently lost that position of rule. God is telling us, I'm going to reestablish it. By the way, it came to me when I was talking to my husband about this. During the millennial reign, when God has reestablished our rule, where is Satan? He is bound for a thousand years. Pretty cool, huh? So when he, he says, I've not subjected the world to come to the angels. I've subjected it to you. Why? I'm returning to you what I initially gave to you. And, P.S., by the way, the one who tripped you up, I'm going to bind him for a thousand years so that you will rule on this earth free from that intrusion. 
That doesn't mean it's free of all sin, does it? For, for the world, right? But for those of us who come back to rule and reign with Christ, we've come back now in our glorified body in this fullness of, of, a, of a renewed mind. We now see him face to face. But the rest of the world is going to be living, and we're going to be there ruling with him. This is the thing that we are still yet looking forward to. There is a subliminal subject. So I call this analytical. This is what inductively they call an analytical uh, observation. We are analytically seeing that there is a subliminal message going on in this book. And I would like to challenge you, if I haven't already, and I can't remember, but if, if I haven't already mentioned it, be looking for all the inferences that are going to be brought up as you move along here that are referencing to the day of the coming of the thousand-year reign. And begin to build a list of the things that he is um, giving us information on on that, because it's really great insight. And it's almost, it, truly, Hebrews, I was talking with Tom Parker, who's about to teach on the um, millennial reign in our ABF class here, in our Sunday school time. Um, and I pointed this out to him, and he said, whoa, I never saw that. He mentioned Hebrews chapter 12, where it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him, Endure the cross. What's the joy set before him? That he is going to come back and be established as king. He's going to rule forever. So again, another subliminal message about the coming kingdom. I never saw it. He pointed that one out to me. So then I showed him a couple things in one and two, and he and I had a great time. It was, it was grand. Since then, I have found multitudes of these in here. Uh, throughout the scriptures where these are brought back up about this uh, world to come. Okay, so there sure are a lot of time phrases. Exactly. Kind of like in 1 and 2 where we were able to actually just do a whole timeline of, of eschatology right? Look at the things which are now, what the things which are yet to come. We, we saw everything down on that timeline pretty much uh, in chapters 1 and 2, and it, it continues here in chapter 3. Lots of time references. Okay. Um, okay, now let me... Uh, my 3 is over here. I've got it. I've got it in the wrong place. Hold on. I've got to pull my chapter 3 out of my homework and put it back where it belongs so that I can, yeah, because that goes from, there it is. Okay, all right, so now I lost my train of thought because it, so, it was so good. Okay, so uh, um, keywords, back to keywords. All right, so back to keywords. In chapter 3, we see then um, the... Um, Yeah, I was going to, but I, I don't really want to get into that much detail. So I really just wanted to kind of tell me what you had just given to us, Celeste, because that's where we. Okay, now we see the rest of God. Okay, that one's very interesting. Rest has a lot of synonyms in here in, in a way. Entering into the rest, is there something in verse 1 that actually parallels with that? The entering into the rest? Or, or that can kind of unite itself with it if you wanted it to? 
that heavenly calling. The heavenly calling is the calling into the entering into the rest. Did you see that? And when you see the heavenly calling, he then identifies it as he goes on in that verse. Consider Jesus then the apostle and high priest of our what? Our confession. So the heavenly calling results in our confession, correct? And the, and the heavenly calling is saying, enter into my rest. So you almost end up with a lot of words that are all drawing you into the same subject matter, which is what? The rest of God, faith in God, salvation. Because it's contrasted with a bunch of words, particularly starting in about verse 12 all the way to 19, which say about the person who doesn't, doesn't enter into the rest, why don't they? unbelieving hearts. Oh, that's what it was. You were talking about the hearts. That's what you had mentioned earlier. Okay. So the unbelieving heart, right? And what is the synonym to an unbelieving heart? Disobedience. Now that's very interesting, huh? Hardening your heart is, well, yes, hardening your heart is what you do. uh, And it is an act of disobedience, right? Right. And it's an act of unbelief because if you don't want to believe something you harden your heart against it right okay so we have hardening of hearts we have the sin we have the word sin in there disobedient unbelief all those falling away even all of those even though they're different words you could mark those I did in a synonymous way in order to to kind of keep your paper clean a little bit because they're all directing you to see the same point. It's the contrast between entering and not entering, right, into this rest. That's another, that would be, absolutely would be another way of do, absolutely. So the, it, it, and he speaks about uh, Christ. There is another obvious contrast in this one too, which is between two, two personages. Who are they? Jesus and Moses. Basically, it, it doesn't say covenant, but yeah, it implies that this, because what is I thought that was interesting was in verse 1, it speaks of this heavenly calling, but with Moses, he was a servant for what? A testimony. And the word testimony means witness, right? It's a witness of those things which would be spoken of later. That's what the heavenly calling is now. Does that make you think of anything back in chapter 1? What does it make you think of? Now he speaks through the Son. He spoke in former days through the prophets. Moses would have been one of them. And in this present time, he now speaks in his Son, Jesus Christ. So the heavenly calling, Moses was simply a servant of the, of, as a testimony or a witness of that, those things which would be spoken of later. So that's all right. Now, um, so the subject then that becomes really big then is what's spoken, Right. Did you notice that? So I marked the word calling, and then I marked the words what would be spoken later because it's another another verbal thing, and it ends up those being a contrast. Um, then when you go down into verse 4, he talks about hearing his what? Hearing his voice. Again, the, the spoken, what they have heard. Did they show you anything in these verses about uh, something that had been heard before through Moses and how they responded to it? Where, huh? 
That's right. They did not listen. So in verse 16, God says about them, they provoked God when they heard, right? Did they not do that? Yes. He said, indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses, he spoke as a witness about things that were yet to come in the future, which would be the coming Christ. And he spoke the the word of God to them concerning um, God's promises to them of entering into a land, bringing one day a seed to them, gave them the Ten Commandments, all these things that you see in Moses, and, and the people refused to listen. They were disobedient to it, right? And it says, God says to about their response to that word which was given to them, they provoked me. And then there's some other words used. What else? Tried and tested him. Back, back in, um, where is that one? Those are in, um, I'm looking for it. Eight and nine, they prove, there it is, there it is, eight and nine, yes. And he says, and in the day of trial in the wilderness, where were your father, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Now, there's another time reference in there. This is, a, a, I thought, was a really interesting and powerful point that was put in here in this particular quote that, that they used because how long did these people have that they heard, and not only heard, but saw the mighty deeds of God, 40 years. And yet they hardened their heart and therefore provoked God. And when God's provoked, what was the result? That's right. He, they were, he was angry. And they, so what does that say to you and I? You must pay much better attention, much closer attention to that the word that now before spoken through the prophets, but now spoken through the son of much greater importance, of much greater weight, of much greater glory. Now, this word which the son has spoken, you better not treat it in the same way. Because if God judged those in the days of Moses refusing to allow them to come into the promised land, into his rest, then how much greater do you think that the chances are that he will do that and more to those who reject the, what the son says? Going with your point unspoken, verse 15 says, while it is said present mm-hmm. today if we hear his voice. So it means he's speaking to us right now. Right, which explains then the verse when he goes on, he says, and as long as it is today, right? So in verse 13, today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He says, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. Did anybody have a, a question about that? What does that mean, as long as it is still called today? Well, it's the day, it's the day of opportunity. As long as we have not yet moved on into the next phase of things, right? We have uh, the times of the Gentiles, and when it's fulfilled, then he goes into his new program, which is going to be to save all Israel. That's when those seven years will come upon the, the earth of God's um, judgments, basically, right? And, when he, and at that time, then, it is done. The church is done. The word of Christ has finished it and accomplished its its work. And he's saying, as long as it's still today, as till that moment comes, when he's finished, you have opportunity. And do not reject it. Do not uh, be unbelieving and fall away from the living God. All right. 
So we see the terms let us are in there, partakers of a heavenly calling. Now, in that heavenly calling, there was another thing. Besides the word confession then, this heavenly calling gives us our confession, right? What else does it give to us? Well, yeah, ultimately, in, in Jesus, then we will have these things. But did you see in verse 6, he wants you to hold fast to what? Your confidence and the boast of what? Your hope. So this calling, which is our confession, is also our confidence and our hope, right? There's another point where he says it almost in the same way. He tells us to hold fast to it in verse 14 because it gives us what? assurance. So it's almost like those can be a a description then of what the heavenly calling is bringing you into. And it results then in your confession. It results in our confidence. It results in our, our hope and our assurance. So again, that the word, basically the gospel message is what really surfaces here, right? The heavenly calling. So in a way, the titling of our chapter could be refined a little bit, where before it was, I mean, I know it, it, in its simplicity, and that's where we'll probably keep going back to just for clarity, Jesus is greater than Moses, right? But what about Jesus is greater than Moses in the conversation here in 3? Yes. Our confession is our heavenly calling is greater than the calling of Moses. Moses, when he came, his calling was about something that was, he spoke of that would come later. But Mo- Jesus is saying, I'm here, right? So, in, you know, Jesus's heavenly calling is better than what Moses brought for the people, what they heard from Moses. Yeah, isn't that cool? All right, so once you kind of clarify in your mind now the, the flow of what the essence of what's going on here is about the calling and the message of Jesus as being that which is the hope. He is greater than Moses. He is, he is in chapter one what? He's greater than the angels because he is what? He is the son. And in chapter two, uh, and he's the son, but he's not just the son. A little bit more than that. He is God. He is God the Son. So he is the Son, but he is God the Son. So in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, then, we, we saw that he is greater than who? Than man himself. Um, because it, in the case of man, what does he, how does he show himself to be greater than in chapter 2? Because he comes to be the Savior. He, he can give us help. The only reason he came to take on flesh, he did not take on flesh, which made him inequality to us, did it? He came in flesh, and, it, and, it, and he did so for the purpose of coming to our aid. He jumped in the water to save us, right? Otherwise, what would we have done? Glug, 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 right? We would have drowned. All right. So now we're moving to chapter 3. So that's kind of your flow of thought here from chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now into 3 then, this heavenly calling then, which is better than Moses, his calling, the things that they heard from him. He is therefore worthy of more glory than Moses, right? And why is this a significant point for this particular audience? (coughs) 
because they are absolutely been inundated with their Hebrew background, their 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 system of the law, and the you know I was thinking about this with um, regards to our lives. You know, when we grow up in a certain way, whatever it is that we grow up in, our religious uh, habits, our family traditions. Um, the familiarity of our own culture even. When, when you come to a place and you are leaving that behind and moving on into something else, how hard is that emotionally for us? How difficult is it often to leave what's familiar and move into the unfamiliar, right? It is difficult. Absolutely. Yeah, although persecution is not really mentioned in here. I mean, they don't talk about it here. Not here, later, yeah. That's probably true, and or are afraid to, to gather with the other Christians for being feared of being identified with them. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. It's really hard for me in the new, because once your eyes are open and you get it, it's hard to go back to understand sometimes why did they struggle so hard with not seeing Jesus was the Christ that was promised, because isn't that what they were looking forward to? Is that not what their whole faith system was supposed to be about? Right? And if it was so difficult for them to see that Jesus was what God promised and that he checked the box of everything that was required of that one that was to come, and yet they still refused to believe it, what does that tell you about them? Hardened hearts. Hardened hearts. And? Our sermon yesterday was on Daniel 9.4 yes. Yes. That's exactly right. He didn't. You know why? Because they didn't. They they lost the whole picture. They forgot to merge together the two qualities of who he was. And and in some ways, I do think that there. I mean, to give a little bit of grace on this, um, in order for Christ to come and be crucified, there had to be some measure of God not giving full disclosure of of understanding on that. Even his own disciples didn't fully comprehend until after the crucifixion. Why? Because he had to go to the cross. Right? So if God had fully opened their eyes and their hearts, you know, his most endearing followers, they would have done everything they could to stop it. It would have still happened because it was God's plan. But there would have been a lot more death along the way. We wouldn't have living apostles to to carry on after they would have been dead having tried to prevent it right so in some ways we know that the whole thing was God's planning and so you're right they weren't looking for that that coming savior who would be crucified for them who would be the lamb of God but rather they were looking for what a a savior for their enemies and a king who would come and give them the power back that's what they wanted. They wanted their power back. So for a lot of them, their, their, their 
reason for looking forward to this coming Christ was askew because it wasn't about God accomplishing righteousness in man. What they wanted was power. So that was at the heart of it. And and what we see in chapter 3 over and over is at the, at the basis of it is unbelief. They didn't really fully believe it or accept it or even want what God was offering. That is, absolutely. Yes, yes. And so they were, and I think we see this in the lives of many people even yet today. There are a lot of people who are in the fold, so to speak. They're in the church, but they're here for a whole different agenda. It's, it's the comfort of familiarity of what family used to, has always done and, and what maybe society expects. And maybe they have other reasons it looks good you know, to somebody in their life that they be in church so they do it. They have a different reason for being there. And right. Right. Yeah. Right. And the part that says that says lay down your life, right? That pick up your cross and follow me. That's hard you think too. Yes it is. Okay, so we've covered a little bit of your keywords. I hope that if you haven't totally seen all of those things, that you'll have a chance now to go back and kind of rework your, your homework, anything that you missed. We saw keywords, Jesus, the glory issue, partakers of a heavenly calling, and how that's connected to anything that has to do with our confession and our hope, confidence, right? Um, there are a lot of let us statements in there, and some of them are unstated let us. It says, hold fast. Well, it's a let us hold fast, right? So you can, uh, can infer those things and make sure you make a nice little list on your let us in there. Um, and he, the, the words hold fast and hold firm are also, I think, significant here. Hardened hearts, unbelief, disobedience, and sin. I put them all synonymously, okay? Uh faithful, as I think Craig brought that one up early. I also marked the word hear his voice and what they heard. And in marking the word hear and heard, then I saw the contrast between what Jesus brings as his message versus what Moses had brought as his. Entering his rest, which actually can go back to that partakers of the heavenly calling. You could put those two together. Although I kind, I, in mine, I did mark it significantly different because it's going to become a major subject as you move forward into the next chapter. So I still marked it a little bit on its own. And then there were testing, trying, and provoked. Okay. All right. Now, lots of references to time in chapter 3 again. Hopefully you've marked those, and they uh, sometimes the marking of those, it's not as important uh, probably for a progressive timelining order in this, but just for the point of, of bringing up cl more clearly, I think, contrasts to what was before versus what is now. And to me, that took me back to chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, where it says before it was spoken through the prophets and now spoken in Jesus. Um Let's see. So, I did a potload of keywords, studies, keyword studies, lots and lots of them. I don't know about you, but I mean, how, did you guys do any of those at all? I know, hopefully you did. What are some things, was there anything that was really 
popping to you in those keywords that you just thought was really insightful? Oh. Okay. Okay. So it kind of makes me think of what I opened us up with where it says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you may have fellowship with us, this partnering, right? And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So, so it, it, in a subliminal way, it links back to what Diane said. The, the, there's a subliminal message about the covenant in here, right? That this is a new covenant, and in covenant, there's, there's partnership, Correct. Oh, I love that. Oh, was that actually from the word partake when you did your study on partakers? Oh, so you go back, right. And see, that was one word I did not look up. So uh, that is so cool. To eat and so it goes. The word partakers. Right, which means they are a root of one another. They're, so a partner and a companion, and in, the, and in the root of it, it's saying it's one who participates in a meal or a drink. And what does that make us think of? The Last Supper and covenant, covenant cutting, yeah. Oh, my goodness. This is really cool. Oh, we could just spend all day just on that. That is amazing. Yes. Well, I also see it as, as linking then to the word hold fast. Settle down, stay in one place, hold fast, right? Retain that which is the confession of your faith, that heavenly calling. Oh, amazing. So fun when you get into these word studies. And the best part is once you have spent enough time evaluating the text, you can start, your mind can make those connections because you go to do these word studies and all of a sudden you go, oh, that's just like this or, oh, I remember that was over here. And so you start connecting little threads. They all pull in together and it really enhances, I think, the depth of your understanding of God's word and his meanings and it also deepens your understanding of doctrinally what is being stated in in the word of God for us. So, all right. So I looked up all kinds of words. I looked up hold, holding fast and our the boasting of our confidence and taking care and encouraging. And um, I looked up the word apostle. That was another one I thought was interesting. Again, not that I haven't done it before, but it was really cool because it's the it's one who it's an ambassador basically, right? So where we saw Moses referred to as 
a servant for a testimony. Jesus, however, is the ambassador of a heavenly calling. So again, there's that little bit of contrast there. Um, all right, so let's move on and move into the next part. I That is enough to get, get you started. Did anybody do also your uh, paragraph titles for chapter 3? I hope you did. If not, please do get that done. You're going to have to have it done in order for next week anyway. So if you haven't done that yet, it's a little bit tricky, though. I got to say, when I went through and did my... Uh, because you have to keep thinking back to the major subject, which is about Jesus' heavenly calling being better than what Moses' calling was, right? The calling of Moses. And so Jesus better than Moses, why? In verses 1 to 4, I saw that he was appointed by God as our confession. So that he is greater because he was appointed by God to be our confession, all right, and so you got to kind of work through everyone, and there's a, I mean, and there's so many things in there to pick up on. The word appointed was not necessarily a major keyword, but I still marked it in a significant way so it would point out the fact that this is significant and different than, than Moses' appointment as a servant. He was appointed as the apostle and high priest, and he is the son, right? Okay. All right, so let's let's go on. You guys can work on those outlines for yourself, and we'll talk about those a little bit more next week. Now, we are ready to move into the end of Chapter 2. We, in, uh, to fin- wrap up Chapter 2 right now, what we did in the homework was the first three days of homework were all focused in on the subject of Jesus himself, having taken on flesh. What are the implications for that? So we're going to look at in what ways was he like us that the scripture reveals to us. So that's our first step is to simply observe what the text says about how he came and and so forth, what we can glean from it. Our next point then is going to be an analytical list of saying why, how does this um, relevant, how is it relevant to you and I? Why is what we learn over here from the text relevant to you and I? And then last of all, then what, and what was the reason? If he took on flesh, what was the reason? Well, we know ultimately the reason was so that he could go to the cross, right? But let's just pull out every single point because, again, every morsel, every word draws us deeper into a, a, a better understanding of all the purposes of God in this plan of his to draw us into faith with him or faith in him and to have the salvation made available to us. So... In what ways was Jesus like us? Let's start with all those, you, day one's homework, all those cross-references you have. Hold on, let me pull mine out too. See if I can get mine. Oops. So that I'm going to have to, hold on. My book is getting so heavy. (laughs) I guess I need to have a crane to carry it in. I'm going to pull these out here. I'm going to make myself, okay, it's a balancing act between the scriptures and my cross-references. Now I've got it, I think. All right. All right, so you all looked at Luke and Matthew 
a lot in Luke. Luke and Matthew and Isaiah, right? And you and obviously Kay just picked a few select passages to get us started. There is way, way more than just what we looked at, right? But we're going to get the basics down. Tell me in what ways was Jesus like us? Born. <laughs> okay, so this is in Luke uh, 1, 21 to 35. He was born of a woman. The womb. From the womb. All right. And uh, when he was born, were there any other insights when you moved on into chapter 2 of Luke? When you looked at 4 to 12? Is that in Luke or in Matthew? Okay, I think that one's Matthew. Hang on, let's go into Luke. So we, what do you see in chapter 2, verses 4 to 12 of Luke? He was a firstborn son. He had, fa- in other words, he had a family. I guess you could just draw that conclusion. He had a mom and a dad. Uh-huh. I'm sorry, say it again. Yes, okay, he was a descendant of David. So he had heritage, and that's kind of what you were saying too, the same thing, yes? Okay, okay. All right, so let's just put some of this on. He's born. When he was born, where was he born? Did it describe his, the place of his birth? In a manger. So what do you draw from that? Why was he in a manger in a barn? Yeah, and they had not made reservations, right? They hadn't called ahead and secured it. But but not only that, but you think about the idea that, you know, if he had been of someone of means either, would he have still been in the barn? No. So obviously, I mean, you get a lot of subtle inferences about the fact that they had to, to end up in a barn for a place to stay. Tells you that they were of lowly means. The baby was born in a manger. He didn't have this grand nursery provided for him, right? So we see him, it's, he's born of a woman, a natural birth, natural meaning human, natural birth, right? In the normal way normal way and um, lowly means okay so let's go let's look at Matthew 13 55 and 56 is that the one you were talking about there no, that was the other one. I'm sorry. Let's go down here. This is going to be Luke uh, 2, 21 to 24, right? Right. Okay. I'm sorry. So in that one, he was um, lowly, meaning not not wealthy. Ah, yes. I'm telling you, this one is all about the law. This almost everything in here is about following the idea of following the law. And I took that in a totally different light in my observations this time than I ever have in times past. 
usually when you go in there and you look at the fact that he followed the law, you look at the obedience of it and the, um, the orderliness of it, right? But in this case, it was more like he followed the law. I took it then down to more of an emotional level. Think about the family heritage and the traditions and the routines and the, you know, what was always, you know, think about it today. When you had, have a child, what do you and your family do as a way of honoring that child spiritually? Well, most of us today, we bring them to the church and we have a dedication of some kind, right? And the church stands up. Some of, in some denominations, they have godparents that they assign or ask people to be as a god uh, a godparent to their child. So these are things that are kind of rituals. And so in the idea of following the law, not just the law, technicality of the law, but following the law as in following the traditions of their family upbringing. And I thought that was also a, another way of looking at it. Um, he was circumcised, right? You, someone said that, right? Or did I just imagine I heard that? Okay, he was circumcised. What else? Where did they take him? To, because he was presented at the temple. Um, And there was also something else provided. It was interesting about the turtle doves. What did they do? They made a sacrifice, right, of two turtle doves. Why? What, do you guys remember what we learned in Leviticus about that? Why was that? Do you remember? Pardon? It well had to do with going through. Yeah, there were like various processes after a child is born, and one of them in here it says that for the any time a male child opens the womb as a firstborn child, then this particular sacrifice is made of two turtle doves. And I thought that was really cool. So it was a sacrifice offered. And it was, I'm just going to put it here, concerning firstborn male. That opens the womb. And I've never done a bunch of study on that one. Has anybody? All the implications on what that's kind of alluding at? Or I just thought that was a cool way of thinking about it, that this was part of their tradition, that, that God instituted a ritual in their law system that says when a male child opens the womb as a firstborn child, you need to pay special attention to that and note it. So when Jesus was born, it was done. And all of this ties in then to having the evidences and the historical record of him fulfilling all of these scriptural things that he was the firstborn and he did open her her womb. He was born of a virgin, therefore, right? Not just the virgin part, but I mean that she had not had other children previously. Okay, all right. So Matthew, what do we see about Jesus? He had a family, correct? Uh, what do we know about his family then? Let's list them. We have mo- mother, father. Now this is really interesting. Brothers and sisters. 
And this is given to us in the, in the context of speaking about his family unit, his mother and father, brothers and sisters. This is not talking about brothers and sisters in Christ, like we can sometimes refer to, but this is literal brothers and sisters. And I, I think it's interesting that this is so clearly stated, and yet it's debated <laughs> in some circles. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I know they do. It's to you're right. They do because it violates a doctrine of their church's teaching. And so they don't want that to be what it means. And so they just come up with something to make it be something else. Matthew 13 is very clear. He had mother and father, brothers and sisters. Okay. Obviously, those brothers and sisters came after him. <laughs> he at least was the oldest. So there's another point. He's the oldest son in a family, which I can tell you bears a lot of weight in their culture, right? So he was the oldest. Let's put that on here. Yeah, I don't know. I know it. That was actually where my mind went. Thank you. I was like, yeah, that Jesus, he's always so perfect. <laughs> sure, I got to be just like Jesus, straight A's in school. <laughs> if you are, who, yeah, that's exactly I thought, yes, I thought of that too. And, and their unbelief is something that we see here in a little bit later. Okay, going to Luke 2, 41 to 52. And this one is interesting. This storyline is where is Jesus in, he, in this particular storyline? They've been to Jerusalem for the feast, right? And so what has happened? Yes. Um, and so he stayed behind and had to go back looking for him. And when he was found, what does he say to them? Yes. Did you not know that I had to be about my father's uh, ha or in my father's house? What does this clearly tell you about what Jesus knew? He knew exactly who he was. Do not let anyone tell you that Jesus did not know that he was God when he was in human form, that he, that he was clueless. This is one of the things I have trouble with so many movies about Jesus and his youth. It, it looks like he's clueless. He's like, well, I don't understand. And his mom's trying to, you know, nurture him as a mother would. But, like, she's clueless and he's clueless. And I'm going, no. The word of God is very, very clear. Now, did his parents fully understand him? Yeah. No. We see that there is a bit of a break between his parents' understanding and his. But it is very clear that that at least the very first time we're given any glimpse about him as a young child, he already knows that he is God, and he is God come in flesh. He knows. Not only knows, but he knows what he has to do. 
Yes, and he knows what he has to do. I'm about, you know, I'm in my father's house, and he's there because he knows where he's headed. That's exactly right. So let's put this, let's get this. He knew who he was. He knew who he was. Meaning he's, that he is God. He was God. He knew that. Knew it. He knew he was God. Um, he knew that his father was God. That his true father was God, Right? And for a child that was born of a virgin, and he knew this, and, the, and this would be one of the, the possible ridicules even at some, you know, against him if he was, had been considered an illegitimate child. But this is a child who knew who his father was. He didn't have to go on websites and search for his father's lineage. Right? He didn't have to go and say, I don't know who my dad is, so I don't really know who I am, and have con internal conflict over it. He knew who his father was. Right? He knew his father was God. He was born of, of that virgin. His, in other words, his deity never left him. Yes, he was relic. He submitted himself. He took on flesh. He submitted himself to that, but it does not mean that he did not have full comprehension, full knowledge that he was God. All right. Yet, what did he do? Yeah, he learned obedience by doing what? <laughs> by submitting himself to who? Yeah. to earthly parents. And I think this is interesting. This is God who knows he's God. He knows he's God come in flesh. He knows God is his father in heaven. He knows he created this world and everything on it. And there he, he submits himself into the womb of a woman, come, is born into this world, and then he submits to her authority over him. And his father's authority over him. Those which were created by him, he is now submitting to their authority for a period of time. Right? Amazing. He learned obedience by submitting to earthly parents. And ver okay, and then um, concerning his parents, though, did they understand him? No. So he was misunderstood by his parents. Oh, boy. There's a conversation. Misunderstood by his parents. No, my parents never understood me, right? And I'm so mad at them, blah, 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 blah. And that's in their psychologies and psychiatrists for the rest of their life because their parents never understood them, right? But Jesus was misunderstood by his parents. There was stress. There was undeserved disappointment by his parents in him, his behavior that they didn't understand. Scoldings, I'm no doubt that there would have occurred on occasion where they didn't understand where he was coming from, what he was thinking. He's the all-knowing God in a human body, and they're scolding him, saying, Jesus, why are you here? Why weren't you with us in the caravan? What are you thinking, right? 
Don't you know we had to come all the way back looking for you? Don't you know you made us worry? And this is the God of the universe who's listening to his parents scold him. He fully understood his mission, why he came to earth, but his family did not. We see that in 49 and 50. Let's see, where is that? Um, they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. Do you see it in verse 50? So he, he was totally misunderstood. Uh, one of the things though, it also says about him is, he, is how did he grow? Okay, so what is that talking about? What is stature? Physical height. He just grew. He was growing up like a normal child. In other words, he probably had growing pains in his, in his legs at the same age we all did, right? He went through hormone changes with his body, just like all children do. Um, you know, he had the flu on occasion probably, you know, things like that. I mean, he went through normal growth. He grew, grew up in the physical stature of a child as a normal person does. He grew also, though, in wisdom. Meaning what? Is it's not the all-knowing God? So what is the wisdom part talking about? It isn't about knowledge, obviously, right? What is this wisdom talking about? Okay. Okay. Okay, there you go. So it's experiential wisdom. It's the idea, the wisdom that is experiencing things by going through it yourself. If you go into any kind of psychology training, my daughter's doing this right now, so we have these conversations a lot. But that's one of the things that they talk about, the difference between empathy and sympathy, right? You know, the empathetic person is the one who's been through it and can really understand at that deeper level why you're in pain or why you might be responding the way you do or what might be motivating you. So there's that experiential wisdom, right? Because of experiencing it. So this is what Jesus is doing. He's going through, he's growing in wisdom, not smartness necessarily, because he's the all-knowing God. He, he could explain it to the, can you imagine, I couldn't do this. I would be sitting in that class with those teachers around me at the, at the temple, and I'd be going, now wait a minute, you got that little point wrong. <laughs> That's not exactly how that happened. <laughs> I'd be wanting to correct him the whole time, but what does Jesus do? He inquires of them. He asks questions. He's sat totally in a position of submission as a natural child of his given age would be. He, he acted appropriately to the age in which he was, at the physical age of which he was. That is restraint. Amazing. Okay, so... That took us to Luke. Then we go into Isaiah. Let's see. I guess I'll have to go over here. Isaiah. 53, 2 and 3. How is he described there for us? I did? Oh, oh goodness. I'm sorry. Okay. Tell me what did I miss? Yes, I see them. Oh, you know what? I, I think I'm coming back to those. Hold on a second. Let me see. I am. I'm coming back to that when we hit the relevancy of things. Okay. That's right. Why was he like us in fifty-three in Isaiah 53, 2 and 3? That's why I did it. I knew there was reason. 
my thinking. I have to get my brain in this. Okay, Isaiah 53. Okay, he he grew. Um, and how is he described, though, in that passage? Some of you just read it really quick because it's only a couple verses. Pardon? Uh, yeah, read 53, verses 2 and 3. Okay, so he grew up as an ordinary man, right? And it says, what was special about him? Nothing. Nothing. Have, how many of you guys have ever felt like there's really nothing special about you? And so you feel like a wallflower. Yeah, me too. I, I was the same. I, I totally had an inferiority all my life. I still do a little bit. Anyway, so Isaiah 53, it says, an ordinary man. Uh, nothing special. Not from the perspective of the world. You know, obviously lots special about him otherwise, right? But nothing special from the eyes of the world as they observed him. And as a matter of fact, not only was he ordinary, but how was he received? Despised. It's a combination of all of it. I mean, it's not just talk, we're not just we're not just talking about his childhood here. We've moved on to Isaiah, where it's speaking about his his his, his having taken on human flesh. What do we know about Jesus in the human condition of of fleshness when he had that? Huh? Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Ordinary, nothing special about him. No reason for people to really admire him. No, at least on the surface, it didn't look like he had extraordinary talents until he begins doing things like walking on water. Right? He had, he had no stately form. No stately form. So he was just an ordinary guy, kind of like me or you. Right? Ordinary. Right, right. Well, that's true. He may have sometimes come across as well arrogant or holier than thou because have you guys known people who are rule keepers and like to, and, and it can look like they're being judgmental. It, you know, I know, <laughs> me, <laughs> because I'm a rule keeper. And it can look sometimes like, well, they're just always so perfect. And it makes people angry in a way, because of when righteousness is, is lived before people, it makes other people uncomfortable because it reveals their unrighteousness. What they're willing to bend on, other people are going, no, that doesn't, but now, obviously, I am not a perfect person, however, there are times when I do break the rules, right? And, and I always get caught. <laughs> and then everybody announces it. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> okay, so let's go on to... Uh, uh, Luke twenty two thirty nine. I know I'm tattling on you, Celeste. Okay, yeah, because <laughs> I know it. You will be. <laughs> You'll be in so much trouble. To yes. 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 
Right. So from the get-go, he had a, he had a lifelong Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's kind of what we were saying because probably, and Don was explaining it real well too, that, you know, if you grow up as a person like Jesus was, perfect, and always doing everything right, because it says he, he came in flesh, but yet he never sinned. He was without sin. And, and yet the world sometimes look at him and go, well, who do you think you are? I mean, they would reject that. They would be angry about that. It, it would feel like judgment on them. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. You scoff at it because it's my brother. I know him. <laughs> I remember when. <laughs> yes. That's right. That's exactly right. I know. <laughs> exactly. Let's take let's take our brother God down because he's God. He thinks he's God. <laughs> well, if you're God, prove it. Now, that came up later in his ministry. If you really are God, do whatever, right? All right. <laughs> Good. Okay. And in Luke 22, let's look at 39. Let's see if I can find. 39 to 44, but specifically 42, 43, 44, he, he knelt down to pray, and he said to his father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. So that tells you how weak he had become, that he, he physically became so weak, God sent an angel to give him the strength to keep moving, right? And being in agony, he was praying fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Why? Uh, just one, one thing before we go there, though, and this is part of it, I guess, is we go back to Isaiah 3, and he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, so he had normal human emotions. And he's exhibiting human emotions again in Luke 22. Yes. So he's acquainted with grief and a man of sorrow. Man of sorrows. So yes, again, it, it, it shows you that he experienced in his life grief and sorrow. I mean, and quite honestly, he experienced in his life to the extreme, right? Possibly even greater than anyone can imagine. And and yet there are are there not people that you know who are physically dying of something. I have a neighbor right now who is dying of pancreatic cancer and he's at his very very end now. And we went over yesterday and I I baked a cake and we went over and visited and um one of the things that happened in that moment, though, I got to say, I just got to tell this little story. It's a sideline, but it was so tender and it made me cry like crazy. Um, my husband was talking with him the night before, and um, he had, at the end of the conversation, my husband said, How can I be praying for you? And is there anything I can do? What, what can I do to help? And he said, no, I think I've got it handled. I'm, I'm good. He's had a, a year and a half or so of preparing for what was coming. So he's had some reprieve. He had some remission for a while. And anyway, so it, that part's good. No, I'm good, he said. 
And then he looked at my husband, and you all know how my husband's feet are in such bad shape, and he's in so much pain all the time. Um, Jim said to him, he said, no, but when I see Jesus, we're going to have a conversation about your feet. (laughs) I don't know. Oh, my gosh. I cried like a baby. I just thought, oh, my gosh. A man of sorrows, he's in pain. He's in, in torment, too. Jesus understands. Yeah, made me cry, too. It was like, oh, I'm just thinking, I need to run all over town finding all the people dying <laughs> and say, would you talk to Jesus? about?" <laughs> just because now I've got that on my brain. And then, of course, immediately my response in my, to myself is, but Katie, you can pray. You have access to the Father all the time. But there was something unique about that concept that he's going to step from, from this life into eternal life, that he's going to step into the very presence of God, and to think that he's going to go as an advocate for my husband. With that on his mind, I'm going to have a discussion with the Lord about your feet. I thought, oh, so be watching for a miracle. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited. Anyway, it was so cool. It was a great opportunity. Um, okay, now where was I thinking here? Acquainted with grief and agony. That's why that story came up. Okay, Luke 22, 39. What do we learn there about him? What does he know, uh, basically, about what's about to happen? He knows what? He knows the cross is before him. You know what's interesting to me as I thought about that? How long has he known that the cross was before him? All his life. From the moment of his infancy, even in his infancy, before we have recollection, recollection of anything, because as, as we come in as a baby, he still had knowledge, right? Yeah, from before the fountain. He knew this from before. He knows the cross. He knows the cross is before him. In his, in his foreknowledge, you mean? Sure. Sure. And, and we know that because it was written in the scriptures. Now, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but is there not, is there not somebody that had said that those ancient uh, writings prophesying his crucifixion was before the Romans even began doing that? And so, yeah, the foreknowledge, the foreknowledge of that is actually recorded in scripture. God knew before what exactly was going to happen. Think about it in the Garden of Eden. He said, he will pierce your feet, but, you, but, but Christ, the seed, will crush the head of Satan. He knew the feet would be pierced. And he had, absolutely. Well, that's true, too. You mean in the moment, had he said, yes, yes. Ooh. Oh, well, the fear of it, the agony in the garden, the prayer, absolutely, yeah. And yet, he knows that cross is before him, and yet what? What does he do? Yeah, he, yeah, yeah, yet, yes. Yes. Well, if he wanted to accomplish the goal which was before him, the joy set before him, as it says in Hebrews 12, 
you know, enduring that cross in order to accomplish the goal. So what was the reason? Let's move to that. Why is it? What, let's move over here. We've kind of talked about this relevancy. We'll go back to that in a second. But tell me, what is the reason he, he did all this? What was his mission? Why would he, knowing the cross was before him, and yet he, he knew he must bear it and did? There you go. So now we're back to Hebrews, aren't we? What we saw, let's see, let me get a different color so that this is easier to read. Um, so what was the mission? Let's get a few of these things down here. And the, I went to go, we'll go back and look at the other again. So he came to taste death for, for everyone, right? It says in Hebrew, Hebrews 2.9. Okay, that's in 2.9. And in 2.17, what had he done? He made propitiation. So he came to make propitiation. And he knew that. He came to make propitiation. So in order for that blood to be shed sacrificially, in the same way a lamb is sacrificially uh, his life is given at the altar. That was the symbolic. It wasn't exactly the same. They didn't cut Jesus' throat, right? But the, the symbolism here is of a sacrifice and that blood was shed. In order for that to be accomplished, even though he sat in the Garden of Eden in great agony and praying that the Father, if there's any other way, yet he knew, he knew he had to bear it in order to accomplish the goal. And so he came to taste death for us. He came to make propitiation. Um, in 1 John 2, 2, it says propitiation is the word halosmos. It means atonement, that which satisfies the required debt. By the acceptable provision made, you are delivered from the penalty of sin. Very cool. So that's what propitiation is, the acceptable sacrifice or that which satisfies the debt. So why him? What, what was the reason? He came to taste death and he came to make propitiation. So, but why him? According to Philippians 2, we got a little bit of insight on that outside of our, our own um, Hebrews record but in Hebrew in Philippians 2 5 to 11 what did you see who is he who is he he took on flesh but who is he he existed in the form of God and did not regard equality, equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was God, right? So that is our first point that we want to understand. Why Jesus? Because he's God. He is God. And I'm going to put on here, God our creator. He's coming to save us, right? Man's creator. 
He is God, our creator. And it says in there, he tells us that he upholds all things how? By the word of his power. And in, and in eventuality, when he's accomplished all these things, what is going to be the end result concerning man? What will man do? Every knee will bow. Do you guys remember when we did Ezekiel? How we talked about through all of Ezekiel over and over and over, the ultimate goal of God was to vindicate his holy name. To bring man back into a right thinking about who God their creator is. That he is worthy of worship. That he is holy and to be approached in holiness. How many times in the book of, of Leviticus, when we did Leviticus, was it revealed to us over and over the holiness of God? And if you don't approach him with that regard, there's going to be a consequence. Right? That's, what, that's how he taught Israel to understand who God is. As you and I dig into the word of God, as we're looking at what we're looking at today, which is really an intimate I think, study on who Jesus is and what he did. Understanding him at this level requires you slow down and really chew on it so that you come to that place of saying he is holy. That's, and that's one of the reasons he, he is the one who had to come, right? He is God, our creator. Therefore, he was the one who is Lord over us, master over us. And why did, by the way, did he even create us? What did he desire? Fellowship with us. He loved us and wanted fellowship with us. So he's God, our creator. And um, at the result of it, at, at uh, the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. So he's, he's heading in that direction. Why, why him? That every knee will bow before him. Um, what does he tell us in he, when we looked in Hebrews, also in Philippians 2.9, but you see it in Hebrews 2.9 as well, which is interesting. They're both the same reference. What did he do in those verses? Do you remember the word emptied? What is that saying to you? He emptied himself. Yeah. So this was his free will volition, right? I mean, he freely did this. He chose to do this. So what's interesting is it shows in this passage here through just this simple statement that he emptied himself, that he did it willingly. So he was willing to do it. Okay, he emptied himself, he humbled himself by becoming obedient uh, to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself, and for this reason, what is God going to do? Exalt him. Again, he willingly came to our aid, he, and God exalted him. Exalted his, uh, his name above all names. Let's see, I'm going to put this a little bit better. God highly exalted him. Um, 
Okay, and bestowed on him the name above every name. All right. What did you see in Luke 1, Matthew 4, 1 Peter 1? Now, here we're into those verses that you were looking at, Carrie, that you, uh, that you thought maybe I missed. But it was on page 58 and 59 of your homework. I, H-I-J, those are the ones I've got marked here. What is another reason why him? He is God our creator and he willingly came to our aid. Why else? Why him? We almost touched on it a little bit already. Okay. He was tempted and yet what? Without sin. So the fact that he was without sin, and earlier in Luke one thirty-five, it says how was he conceived, conceived by the Holy Spirit, what? There you go. Good girl. You brought in a whole nother lesson. Nice work, Diane. <laughs> Spotless. So if you kind of put a couple of these things together that we've been saying here, what you're really seeing is why him? Because he's the only one worthy. He was sinless. He was the holy one. He was. What was the requirement for the propitiation? A spotless, unblemished, pure offering, right? And is there any other who could fulfill that? Is there any man that could fulfill that? No, no simply by what Diane even has stated. Through the federal headship, we're already born in sin, right? So there was no human being on earth that could be offered. Animals, why are animals not sufficient? Because it's not an equality uh, uh, offering either. It's an animal for the, the life of a man whose value is greater. A man. So that didn't even work, right? Well, and, and it had to be God because he's doing it for all men, not just for another man. Well, okay, well, and, we'll, and we're going to get there too. Exactly. So Even let's. If he had a perfect person, he could then maybe take the place of some person. I like that. Even if you had a perfect person, but is there a perfect person? It's a pointless conversation, right? He is the only one worthy. I, th I think about what it says in uh, Revelation. He is worthy. Who is worthy to break the seal? Right? No one except the Lamb, the Lion of Judah. Right? All right. He is the only one worthy. It says he is spotless and uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, basically. A holy God put on flesh. For that reason, he is called the Son of God, spotless. Son of God. And so that's in Luke 1, 35. And you, who said he lived without sinning? What, do you remember which verse that was that we looked at? That was, um, remember, I think that one was Matthew. For Matthew 4, um, 1 to 11. Let's look at that. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, right? And when he was there, he was tempted on these various levels. And every single time, what was his reply? The Word of God. Every single one, he gave a re rebuke by quoting back to him uh, the Word of God. 
And in the end, what Satan wanted Jesus to do was to do what? Fall down and worship him. Boy, does that not take you back to what we looked at in, in um, uh, Ezekiel, where we looked at the fall of Satan, that he wanted to exalt himself above God. Here we see him saying it literally in words, fall down and worship me. He wanted that position, and, and he did not do it. So he lived he, without sinning. Yeah, well, but because, I know, well, you know what that sometimes tells you? That sometimes even your kids, if they disobey you, it just depends on what the disobedience, how you perceive that disobedience. You know, his parents never, he never said to his, his parents never said to him, now don't you stay behind, and then he disobeyed. Rather, he just did stay behind, right? Uh, it's not disobedience in that he... He didn't have a directive. Right. And it wasn't a law. There was no law given to him by his parents. You know, we lay down the law all the time with our kids, right? Don't you do that or else, right? That would be disobedience. In that scenario, it looks like disobedience, but really it wasn't. It wasn't an act of disobedience. They were disappointed in him, however. Why weren't you with us? <laughs> Oops. Are you okay? Yeah, you did. I saw that. No, it's okay. It's right. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Oh, that's plastic. That's good. Okay. You're welcome. Sorry. You got a lot of helpers, don't you, dear? <laughs> Spilt milk. Don't cry. <laughs> okay. Okay, and concerning his blood, this was another really good point. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, what does it tell us about why he, why he is the only one that's worthy? His blood is what? Yeah, his blood is unblemished. That was in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Okay, and in John, it talks about him being our what? He is our what? He is our Passover lamb. He is the lamb of God. That is exactly right. So... If you understand the Jewish system in that, in our, which is kind of where we're, our mindset has been, it is, this is what was required by their law, and he is their Passover lamb because he lived without sinning, his blood is unblemished, therefore he can be our Passover lamb. And he takes it from being the, the blood of an animal to being that which is, which is acceptable, the, the blood of life, human life, which can give life for man. Right? Uh-huh. I don't know. That's a good one to think about. I don't know. I'm sorry. That sounds like a gospel verse, but I don't know. Okay, last, I'm sorry, Diane, I can't help you. The very last one is uh, concerning why him. Hebrews 2.18, Hebrews 2.14 and 15. I liked the, the way she kind of took us back to this because this takes us back into chapter 2 at the close of it. 
What do we see him doing there? It says in verse 16, assuredly, he does not give help to who? But he does what? He gives help. He is able to give help, right? He is the one who is able. Is there anyone else able to save us? Wretched man that I am, only Jesus Christ can do that. Thank, thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, it says in Romans, right? He is our Passover lamb. He, and then our last one is he is the only one able. Okay, so to come to our aid, to help us. Okay, now, we can go back now at this point. Well, we, we probably should put this one other point on here. I should do this one other. Another reason is seen in verse 14. And I do think it's really cool. Because of what my experience has been the last couple of days of ministering to my neighbor across the street who is so close to death. What is it that he is able to do that no one else is able to do? Render death powerless. Now, we opened in Hebrews showing Jesus, he made that propitiation, which we now see he's, he is the only one able to do that. He is the only one who is worthy to do that. He lived the sinless life. He made propitiation. And then what did he do? After he made propitiation or after he made, um, um, how does it say it in here? It's in chapter one. Hold on. I got to get my papers. I got too many things to flip here. Um, he made purification, thank you, of sins. I keep forgetting that word purification. He made purification of sins, and then he did what? Sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God, making purification says he died. How did he get to a place of sitting down? He resurrected. He has power over death. So why him? Why is he the, the, what is the reason we had to have Jesus? Because he is the one who's able uh, to render powerless the devil. He was able because he has the power to resurrect. He was able to render devil powerless who had the power of death I'm just going to put and death because I'm short on room over here that's in verse 14 of chapter 2 two fourteen, Hebrews two fourteen. okay so he gave help to us the descendant of Abraham so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God he made propitiation for sins and since he himself was tempted, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now, it's not saying that he wasn't able without doing all this. He has always been fully able. But what this is saying is that he is now experientially in that place where we can come to him and we know he is able to understand us, right? Think about his life. Just tell me some things that this means for us. What is the, how is all of this relevant then to you and I? When you go to your prayer closet or when you uh, get on your knees before the Lord, 
what is what have you learned in what we've looked at here about his having taken on flesh that matters he understands an atheist sir Yeah. So what does he under? He understands pain. He understands suffering. What else does he understand? Rejection. What else? Grief. Temptation. He experienced it without submitting to it, but he does understand it. You cannot tell me that when he was in that garden, if Satan had come to him in that moment, <laughs> that maybe he would have contemplated, but he didn't. He could have called the angels down from the cross itself, and he didn't. Right? But he had the, temp but he had the temptation. Yes, and the angel came to minister to him so that he would have the strength to, to sustain in that because his flesh had been tempted to the very max in the anticipation of that. Yes, absolutely. He very likely could have been. And, you know, when he's in agony and praying, you know that he's lost. That's when we get to that place where we are so wrapped up in, in our agony and pain, too, it is also telling us that, that his physical moment overcame his, his knowledge, even, of the agenda. But what, what won out? The, the knowledge of what he came to be a propitiation. He, he understood. He understood the cross before him, yet he knew he must bear it. He understood that. And that's what he stuck with. That's where he had the fortitude in. I couldn't have done that. I can tell you there are times when I have something as simple as a headache and I would do almost anything <laughs> to get rid of that headache, you know? Take my head off, you know, whatever. Because it's, the pain is so bad. But Jesus has borne, he understands pain, suffering, rejection, grief, temptation, right? He understands all these things. Yeah. What about, um, yeah. Think about family issues too. Now let's go beyond the physical issues. What about just family issues? Do you have family issues that you struggle with? Yeah, people that, yeah, well, and you know what, the fact that you're laughing makes, makes it probable that you're not in the deepest, darkest moments yet, but sometimes those difficult 
family relationships can go really south really fast when you've got family members who are suicidal who are who are yanking your family apart who are dragging you into court who are um just being mean and malicious to you, bailing on you when you need them the most, whatever. I mean, those taunting you, ridiculing you, rejecting you, leaving you out, right? We all know this. We've all had family situations. I guarantee you there's no one in here that's probably free from some of that, some degree or another. So he had family issues. Don't you know he knew them all? He experienced them. How does that feed into how, what is relevant about that for you and I now as you really contemplate this one of the things it does for me is when I'm struggling with unsafe family members I say Lord how did it feel to know that your own brothers were rejecting you mm -hmm. so you know how it feels so help me to deal with this gracefully right you know, right and yeah and when you know you know because your eyes are open the reality of eternity apart from God you know it to the measure that you know it. What about God, Jesus himself? He really knew it. And he looks upon the world around him, and he sees lost souls. And some of them were in his own family. And knowing their eternity, don't you know his heart just his heart. was wrenched. Which is why he knew he had to bear it. Because he, if he had not been the all-knowing God that he was, fully God, fully man, would he have, have been able to even endure this? Why must it be him? Because only he could have fully understood the need and the, and the desperate situation. He could only fully know the concept of eternity without God. Think about him on the cross. He endured the cross in that moment when God turned his eyes from his son and darkness fell. He felt what we feel in isolation with, with God not being in our life. He felt what we will, would feel if we spend eternity in hell without God the Father in the light of that. He felt that for us. Yeah, that's another, that's a whole nother one. What issue is there in your life right now that you think no one understands? And now that we've done this, who understands fully, experientially? God does. God does. Yes, God gives us mentors. He gives us friends. He gives us a shoulder to cry on. We are to be the heart, the hands, the feet of Christ in this world. We are to reach out. We are to touch. We are to love. We are to give comfort and compassion. But most importantly is that we, that we turn people's eyes upon Jesus so that they come to find a relationship, a sweet fellowship with him that is a rock for them. You may not be there tomorrow, but God will always be there. Yes, and so you need that intimate relationship and your knowledge of God. And you have to build a foundation of fully understanding who God is so that you have a foundation to stand on when the world starts rocking, and it will. Your life will rock at some point or another, right? Yeah, but he experienced Satan's victory. 
That's right. Well, this is why we know our Jesus. He is able. He is God himself. He's our creator. He came and did it all. Amen. Thank you, guys. It was a good lesson.